So, here we are back in Romans. I hope that your heart has been prepared all the way through this week. I hope you've been meditating on these truths. I hope you're ready to jump into Romans chapter 3. Today we will be verses 9 through 20. For those visiting with us, we are on a journey. (laughs) We're traveling a little bit at a time through the book of Romans. Every bit of this book is unbelievable. It's amazing because it's from God the Holy Spirit through Paul. And every one of these passages that we study on every given Sunday exposes more about the glory of our God and how amazingly blessed we are in Jesus Christ. Um, If you notice on the back of your handout, you can kind of see a brief outline. This is the last study in the first major section of the book of Romans. What am I talking about? Well, you see that section that goes from chapter 118 to chapter 3, verse 20. Here is the main theme of this section of Romans. It is this. God's righteousness is revealed through, and here's the ugly word that we've been interacting with for the last two months, and you're sitting there saying, praise God, this is the last study in this section. It is the word condemnation. Through this leg of the journey, we have been through the depravity of downtown Sin City. We've also toured through the self-righteous elitism of the suburbs. Through this section, we have been dialing in every single week on this key argument, and hopefully you're able to articulate this now that we've gone through chapters 1 through 3. Here it is. Every single person needs Jesus. Why? Because every single human being deserves God's righteous condemnation. Not one person is is exempt from this. Everyone needs Jesus. Chapter 1 reminds us very clearly that all of these truth-suppressing people that would be categorized more or less as pagan Gentiles, which my friends here today, this would categorize pretty much all of us. Those of us who don't have in our background this ethnic Judaism, this Jewishness in in us. Gentiles, we have been saved by God's grace alone. That is the story of of chapter 1. It reminds us that we need Jesus. Then he travels into chapter 2, and we're reminded that even those who come from the specifics of the Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, these are Jews. But even these ones who might embrace this element of self-righteousness about them, Paul very clearly in chapters 2 into the first part of chapter 3 reminds us that, yes, even you need Jesus. Why? Because even you are not exempt from the condemnation of a holy God. Now today, we're in the last section, the last segment of this first section. So I hope you're following me. Yeah, I was thinking this week, how do you, how do you explain this? All right, chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, the last segment. This is a summary segment. Uh, I think of it sort of like this. This is the final, this is the prosecuting attorney's final argument for day one of the trial. This is the teacher's last lecture summarizing all of the lectures from the first day till the midterm. 
This is the landscaper's capstone layer for this portion of his wall project. For those of us who've been enjoying watching some of the Olympics, this is the fireworks display at the Olympic opening ceremonies in Tokyo, okay? This is the grand finale of what's happening. So you come to this segment in Romans, the first segment, Paul clearly is point, painting this picture. You all need Jesus. Now he's summarizing this section with grand finale fireworks. And I love this because Paul very clearly makes this point again and again and again, and he comes right back to it, this key truth in this section. The whole world deserves the condemnation of a righteous God. Okay, so if somehow you missed the point of chapters 1 to chapter 3, and whoever might be in the church of Rome that fell asleep in this section, I don't know. But if somehow you missed the point, or if somehow you don't... Okay, the whole thing these days is self-identify, right? As nonsense as that is. Okay, so if you don't identify yourself in this passage as being either a pagan truth suppressor or a self-righteous Jew, well, this section is for you. Why? Because you're part of the whole world. <laughs> Paul's making this point. He's gone to these people groups, these self these truth-suppressing Gentiles, these self-righteous Jews, and now at the capstone of all of this, he says, I want to prove a point to you, that even if you don't think you're part of this group or this group, that you've somehow avoided the wrath of God and His just condemnation, let me clearly teach you the Scriptures. And here's what the Scriptures teaches you, that you're part of the whole wide world, and the whole world deserves God's condemnation. So yes, this is the capstone of the ugly part of the journey. <laughs> and I want us to read about this. But here as we read through this, I want you to notice, what does Paul do to prove this point? This is golden. This is awesome. And we'll talk of this in just a minute. But he unashamedly presents his argument by quoting. And what does he quote? Here it comes. One Old Testament text after another. He's taking snapshots of the Old Testament. If you don't believe me, Paul says, let me just go back to the scriptures that you have given to you from God. All right. If we remind ourselves of the passage we looked at last week, what is this? These are the oracles of God. God's word. And Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, these aren't just my words, they're God's words. He proves this statement that we looked at last week. Remember this statement, let God be true and everyone else a liar? Do you remember this last week? Paul proves it in this section. And he simply takes the Old Testament scriptures and one after another builds an amazing grand finale argument. And so if you would join me in reading, it's on the back of your handout, it's on your, in your Bibles in front of you, on your devices. Would you follow along with me as we read verse 19 through verse 20? What then are we? So Paul is an ethnic Jew. He considers himself here with these people. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes or before their eyes. And now a very clear articulated summary statement, verses 19 and 20. Now we know, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So very clearly, Paul's key truth is this. The whole world deserves the condemnation of a righteous God. So what let's do is let's just unpack this key truth starting in verse 9 this morning. Verse 9 says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we all have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So in our minds, we need to go back a couple chapters and remind ourselves of this. Paul has already addressed the Jews in the last two chapters. Paul, having already addressed the Gentiles also in chapter 1, brings them back into the discussion. So the flow of the argument is Gentiles, Jews, Jews and Gentiles. That's the flow of the argument here. He is proving that all human beings, both Jews and Gentiles, are under the curse of putrid sin. And we can say that because the Scripture calls our righteousness even as filthy rags. This is putrid. And so, as ugly as this gets, it's a reminder of this putrid sin. And, and it's sort of like Paul is saying this. Does the Jews' rotten trash bag somehow smell less potent than the Gentiles' rotten trash bag? Do you understand what I'm saying? Whose trash stinks more? Okay. Running the risk of being a bit gross. Does the manure in Jerusalem somehow smell better than the manure in Rome? No! It all stinks. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Even more gross, okay? Does the, the vomit in this beautiful glass basin smell any better than the vomit in the clay bowl? Like, man, Pastor Andrew, please stop. This is gross. <laughs> Enough metaphors here, right? 
The point is this. It's gross. Jews, Gentiles alike, your sin is putrid before God. And that's the point Paul's making here. The powerful destruction of sin has overcome both Jews and Gentiles. All are under sin. How does he say this? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin or under the power of this putrid sin. It's got you. This global pandemic, as it were, it got everyone. Not a single person is exempt from this. And now Paul unleashes this grand finale of arguments with these words. I love these words. We could take a good dose of this in any one of our theological arguments these days. Any pastor should preach these words every single Sunday. And what are the four words in English, two words in Greek? As it is written. Not as I feel about the text or as I feel about your condition before God. I just think it sounds better this way. No, how does Paul argue the point? As it is written. Paul is setting a wonderful pattern for every one of us here in this room today. Theological questions we have, we run to the Word of God. Why? Well, Paul himself says to Timothy, the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in what? Righteousness. We're learning a whole load about righteousness here in Romans. How are we going to learn about righteousness? Let's go to God's Word, and that's exactly what Paul does. So, he presents these reasons from the Old Testament Scripture. Here is reason one that he presents in this text. Reason one. The whole world deserves the condemnation of a righteous God because their corrupt nature condemns them. Alright, this isn't just skin deep. It reaches down deep into your heart and your soul, this corruption. And what does Paul do? You want to write down, actually it's on your handout. The Old Testament text is right along. Psalm 14, and the mirror text is Psalm 53. They're almost identical psalms. Twice in the Psalter we find this. Psalm 14, Paul almost word for word quotes Psalm 14 here. Verses 1 through 3. And he says this, None is righteous. No, not one. This is David through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 of Psalm 14 says this, No one understands, or sorry, verse 11 of Romans 3 says this, No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. Now, no one does good, not even one. Let's just look at this one phrase at a time. Can we do that this morning? Let's start with this first one. Because really what Paul is saying, I mean, he's just peeling back layers of information here, reminding us of who we really are. And he starts with this one. None is righteous. No, not one. Okay, so this very clearly is not like a mostly thing or a majority thing here. It's an entirety thing. All are morally corrupt, and as such, none meet God's standard 
of holiness on their own. Listen to how this is stated so emphatically by David in Psalm 14, because we, um, Jim started the service by reading this. Psalm 14, I really appreciate this reference. How does David say this in Psalm 14, verse 1? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Then right after that, they are corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So, Psalm 14 gives us an amazingly appropriate word. It is the word corrupt. Corrupt in Psalm 14. What does this mean? It means spoiled from the inside out. It means ruined. In theological terms, this is known as total depravity. Not some depravity, not most depravity, total depravity. This sin has reached deep into our souls and has corrupted everything about us. Every part of our human existence, outside and inside, body and spirit, mind, will, emotions, however you want to explain, the, explain this, describe this. It has been spoiled by sin. And so in our minds right now, is like, how much? How bad is it? How bad does this get, Pastor Andrew? I mean, you're right, this is ugly. How bad does it get? Well, if I can remind you of how bad it gets, Paul uses one metaphor in the Scripture that reminds us of how bad it is. And we find this metaphor very clearly in the book he writes to the church of Ephesus. And in this letter to the church of Ephesus, here's how he describes how bad it is. He says this, verse 1 of chapter 2, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Can you let that sink in for just a minute theologically? He says it again in verse 5, as if somehow we missed this in Ephesians 2. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Okay, so not sick, not troubled, not unstable, not on your last leg about to give up the ghost. No, dead. That is how the sinner is described. The one who is unregenerate, who does not have Jesus Christ in their life. This is very important for us to grasp theologically, especially in contemporary Christianity. Why? Because we have a lot of pastors standing up even to preach this very day that will not tell you from the scriptures that if you've never come to Jesus Christ in repentant faith, you're dead. You're a sinner. You stand condemned before a holy God. Theologically, this is like saying, if you can grasp these more metaphors. Sorry, today's full of metaphors. I like metaphors. IVs in the arm of a skeleton just won't work. Catch that. You cannot do CPR on a skeleton. Why? It's dead. It needs new life. Now, how to, no matter how much you and your daughter try to go out there with tears and eyes to try to give water to the bunny that died of heat stroke in the cage in Reading in the summer, may or may not be personal example from the Scott family home, 
no matter how much water you try to provide for this rabbit, it will not take nourishment. Why? Because it is what? Dead. That chicken who found her end in the grasp of the raccoon, no matter how much you try to feed this chicken, will never again lay an egg. Why? Because she's dead. That ground squirrel who happened to run into your 22 bullet <laughs> will no longer dig holes in your yard. Why? Praise Jesus, he's dead. <laughs> All right? This is where we're going with this. It's not mostly sick. It's dead. And so we have to grasp these truths from the Scriptures. Why do all sinners deserve God's condemnation? Because they are corrupt from the inside out. None is righteous. No, not one. No one is exempt from this discussion. And so then he just lines it out after that. Would you follow along with me as he quotes, continues to quote some, from Psalm 14? Here it is. No one understands. Okay, if you think you've got God's insights and you've not come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, and you do not got God's insights. Not one single person comprehends God on his own. Paul makes this distinction in 1 Corinthians 2. You can write this passage down because it so beautifully articulates the difference between the spiritual person and the natural person. The, the regenerate and the unregenerate. He says this, no one seeks for God on his own. Not one single person will seek after God. We had a good, short but good discussion last night as a family about that. Not one single person will seek after God on their own. My friends, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to what we're going to see later on, like next week and all the way through to chapter 8. What does this require? It requires the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to regenerate us. No one seeks for God. In fact, the truth of the matter from the Scriptures is when given a choice ten times out of ten times, the corrupt soul will seek selfishness and will not seek after God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. The corrupt nature does not only mean that one does not go in the right direction. The corrupt nature means they have actually headed into the wrong direction. You didn't just miss the mark. You've hit the wrong mark. Together they have become worthless, morally confused and tainted. And he says together. So he, again, I mean... He's including this. This is a deep, dark, empty, inescapable group funk <laughs> of sin. And everyone without Jesus is in this. Then he clearly summarizes this portion from Psalm 14 with this one. No one does good, not even one. You can bank on this, that doing something righteous in God's eyes something that truly has weight or value for the scales of eternity won't ever, 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 ever happen on your own. Why? 
because the human nature is totally corrupt from the inside out. So my friends, that's not me, that's Bible. I found myself in almost tears this morning reading of the account of a sermon from a fellow who smiles a lot. I appreciate his positive attitude. I do not appreciate his theology. It's a fellow by the name of Joel Stein. In 2011, he quotes this. He says, he, he states this, that 99.9% of people are not bad people. And I listen to that and I think, my brother, what Bible did you read? Because that's not in this Bible. The Bible that we read says there's not one who does good. No, not one. And do you see now what Paul is doing through the argument of the gospel? Chapter 1, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The wrath of God is revealed in the gospel. So what do we need to do? We need to break down our pride to the point where we realize we need Jesus. That's what's happening here. Let's go into the next form of this, and I'll, I'll move more quickly through these other arguments, these other reasons. First of all, the whole world deserves the condemnation of a righteous God because their corrupt nature condemns them. Second of all, because their communication condemns them. How does Paul say this? Well, he quotes from Psalm 5.9. What does he say in Psalm 5.9? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And then what does he do? He quotes from Psalm 140, verse 3. The venom of asps, snakes, is under their lips. And then what does Paul do? Well, he quotes from Psalm 10, verse 7. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The simple point that Paul is making is the same point that Jesus Christ, Paul's Lord and Savior, makes in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Do you remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the point Paul is making here. The simple point, all human beings prove their inner corruption and that they truly deserve divine condemnation. How? By how they communicate. And it's not just verbal communication, nonverbal communication. This one focuses more on the verbal, but think about today, the here and now. The 21st century, do we not see this? Speech that so quickly curses God, so easily makes light of sin, so effortlessly rips into others created in God's image. The vulgarity, the gestures, the harsh comebacks, the cutting roasts, the angry rants, the ruthless lies, the self-consumed slander. That is the world we live in. So this was written back in the first century, by the Spirit through Paul, this is so appropriate for the 21st year in the 21st century, for right here, right now. Condemnation condemns. In a world of tech and social media, the absolutely vulgar songs, the godless TikToks, the ruthless posts, the dirty memes, all of this is proving the fact that humans deserve God's righteous 
condemnation. And so let's go to the next argument. Because their violence condemns them. Without even reading the verse, think about the last year and a half. What has been highlighted on national TV, international news, whatever you want to go, we live in a brutally violent world. And it is implicating every single human being. How does Paul say this? Well, in this point, he goes to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8. And by the way, there's beautiful context between, behind each one of these references. He quotes from Isaiah 59, and here's what he says, Paul, through the Spirit. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they haven't known. The simple point is this. Man's self-consumed brutality dynamically implicates him before a holy God. Because of the fall of Adam, corrupt human beings are inclined to do what? Lash out. I mean, we see this from... Cain and Abel, all the way through human history, lashing out. Even the most passive human being on God's green earth has done something at some time to express selfishness and bring harm to another person. And Again, as we mentioned last week, if you doubt this, let's get into field trip mode and let's go visit the twos and threes-year-olds again this week. And see all of our lovely, dressed, little heathens <laughs> interacting during toy time. It is at the core of who we are. Without Jesus, we are condemned. The whole world deserves the condemnation of a righteous God because the corrupt nature condemns us, because communication condemns us because violence condemns us. He makes another point, and here it is. And honestly, he could rest all of this argument on this one verse. Quoting from Psalm 36, verse 1, Paul states this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That, in and of itself, is enough to condemn for all eternity. Simply enough, fallen human beings truly do not reverence the create, creator and sustainer of all life. They have no respect for the God who sees and knows all things. Again, do, do we not see this in the 21st century? I mean, my heart just goes out. I see young ones all through this room. And the world you're growing up in, the godlessness the lack of reverence for the holiness of God? A glaring disregard for God, the one who sustains life and breath every single day according to His sovereign plan? But it's more than that. It's more than just not reverencing God. It's demanding from God. Let's arrogantly demand that God does exactly what we want Him to do. But it's also a complete disregard for his expectations, for his creations. Paul doesn't mess around here. He says there's no fear of God in their eyes. The whole world deserves the condemnation of a righteous God. Why? Because their corrupt nature condemns them. Because their communication condemns them. Their violence condemns them. And then their 
irreverence, for God condemns them. And now we come to the summary statement of this portion, smaller and larger. So 9 through 20, it's the summary statement for this section, but it's also, it acts as the summary statement for all of chapter 1, 2, and 3 up to this point. Actually, chapter 1, 18 to 320. And what is the summary statement? Now we know that whatever the law says, so in general, this is God's words talking here because he just quoted straight through Psalms. This isn't the Mosaic law. It is in general God's law, God's word. Now we know that whatever the law says, God's word says, it speaks to those who are under God's word or the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable for the works of the law. And I believe he's now dialing in a little closer to the Mosaic law here. The works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of one thing, sin. As has been proven in the previous three chapters, every single human being is accountable to God's moral law. God's moral law revealed in God's holy word not only clearly exposes God's righteous expectation, but also clearly exposes man's complete inability to perfectly conform. You cannot obey. My friends, that's what the law does. It proves that we cannot do it. This Old Testament law will never make someone holy before God. It only exposes the nature of a holy God and the natural unholiness of men. That is the Old Testament law. We're going to see more of this in the next couple chapters. The Old Testament law does not clean sin away. Catch this. It does not clean sin away. It exposes sin's stain and demands divine intervention. That's what the Old Testament law says. You need someone. That's someone who was promised in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. You need that rescuer. That's who you need to look for. It's not in you to perfectly obey the law. It is through the rescuer. In these two verses, we find three conclusive summary statements. Here they are. That every mouth may be stopped. Okay, so if you have an argument, stop it. All right, here's the next one. The whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's the next one. No human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight. I appreciate how one commentator named Douglas Moo explains this. He says this, this terminology reflects the imagery of of the courtroom. Shutting the mouth connotes the situation of the defendant who has no more to say in response to the charges brought against him or her. Speechless. The Greek word translated accountable means answerable to or liable to prosecution. Paul pictures God, get, catch this, Paul pictures God both as the one offended and as the judge who weighs the evidence and pronounces the verdict. The image then is of all humanity standing before God, accountable to Him for willful and inexcusable violations of His will, awaiting the sentence of condemnation that their actions deserve. 
So, so what is this doing? In your mind right now, there ought to be some tension. <laughs> you ought to be like, that, that's just ugly. This theology is not fun. <laughs> right now, you ought to be thinking, we need something, we need someone. And hereby, we come up through the scriptures with the solution for this sin problem. Instead of jumping into the next chapters, which are going to be beautiful, come back next week. We're going to find out about this being declared righteous. But I'm going to go back to Psalm 14. In your mind, go back to Psalm 14. Paul bases most of his arguments on Psalm 14. And catch this. I don't know if you caught this at the beginning in our opening text this morning as Jim read it. Psalm 14, verse 7. Here's what David cries. And this is the cry of all of our hearts through the book of Romans as we get to to the end of chapter 3. All of us are saying, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. We need rescued. What is the solution? Salvation from sin comes only through the cross of Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. That's what this whole argument is. The solution is not just work harder till we impress God and earn His approval. The solution is not do enough good works to outweigh your bad works. The solution is not find another human being to confess all of your faults to. The solution is this. We need Jesus. We need the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to conclude with a so what. Based on the fact that we need the cross of Jesus Christ, so what? Putting shoes on the text that we listen to today, what does this mean for you, young and old? I think we need to answer answer and ask this question. Do I truly believe the fact that the whole world deserves the condemnation of a righteous God? Furthermore, do I realize that the whole world needs Jesus? My unbelieving friends here today, those of you who have not yet come to Jesus Christ in repentant faith, It is no mistake that you are here today. I try to say this every single Sunday. It is no mistake that you're listening online right now or in your car driving right now listening to the radio. Today, would you come to the place where you admit you are a sinner before a holy God? Today, would you repent from your sin and through faith turn to the gracious God who gave His Son to take away the penalty of your sin? Would you turn this very day to Jesus, just like this jailer in Acts chapter 16, about to take his own life? What can I do to be saved? And Paul says with Silas, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I would say that this very day, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For those of you who have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, my believing friends here today, would you refuse to fall into the trap of thinking we are all just morally good people and need redirected at some point to Jesus? 
Would you embrace the fact that man is completely corrupt, totally corrupt, from the inside out, headed on a crash course with God's judgment and in need of a Savior? Would you be the one to share and shine and show Jesus Christ to the spiritually dead world around you today? To these spiritually dead ones, how does God regenerate their souls? He brings His Holy Spirit to draw them to Himself. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. He is drawing people. And what is He going to use? His Word to save them. And so who this week, my friends, will you share the Word of God with? Who will you share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with? We prayed as we started the sermon, God Give me one person, one, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Would you take that challenge this week? Would you share the greatest story ever? Why? Because Romans 1.18 really says this. Romans 1.18 that started this whole ugly section says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is Bible truth. But also, Romans chapter 3, 19 says this, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. But also, Romans 1, 16 says this, the theme of the entire book of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Gentiles. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. So God, that's our prayer, that we would be unashamed of this gospel. We would truly embrace the ugliness of this journey. Oh God, but that you would get us so excited about the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ the one who took on himself our sins on the cross, the one who went to the grave, but the one who after three days rose victoriously over sin and death. God, my prayer is this today. Two things. One, God, that you would save unregenerate souls today. And two, that followers of Jesus Christ would walk out these doors today fired up about Jesus. We would go find people to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with this very day. My friends here today, I praise God that you were here. Not just because I didn't want to just preach to my family today but because we heard truths of the scriptures and we interacted with these things. What will you do about what you heard today?
come to Jesus in saving faith for those who have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm talking young to old. I'm talking people that have been in church for one year. I'm talking about people that have been in church for one day. I'm talking about people that have been in church for 41 years. If you've never come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, would this be that day? In just a minute, we're going to close out with an anthem of praise to our God. In just a minute, we're going to go our way. You're going to get in your car, and you're going to go home. How will this text of Scripture change your life this week? In just a minute, we're going to sing a song, His Mercy is More. That sin that condemns us, God's mercy is more. Would you believe that? Would you live that? When you stop to get gas this afternoon, would you tell the gas attendant that Jesus wants to save them? When you run into your neighbor this weekend on your walk or whatever you might be doing, you drive by him, would you shine the love of Jesus Christ? Tomorrow morning when you do not want to be at work on Monday morning at 730 would you go with a smile on your face and shine the love of Jesus to every single person in your workplace? Kids, as you prepare to go to school in a couple weeks, would you right now be preparing your heart to shine Jesus Christ at your schools? I pray, God, that we would live this out, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you so much, Father, that we have gone through this journey, through the depravity of Sin City, through the elitism of the suburbs, through the sin of the whole world. And I thank you for what you've done through your servant, Paul, that your Holy Spirit is driving us to remind us that we need Jesus. Again, I pray, God, that you would draw those who have not come to you in repentant faith, that they would call to you to save them this very day. I pray, God, that you would help those of us who have come to you to live in this humility and grace because we are sinners saved by your amazing grace. And when we pray these things, Father, we pray them in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for your attentive ears today your open hearts, and I pray that God takes his word through the rest of this week and continues to draw you to himself. Some of you came today ready, ready to worship through your resources, to share of your resources. We're not going to pass any offering plates here. There are boxes in the back if you'd like to participate that way, or you can also share online. Um, if you're visiting with us today, thank you for being here. I can't tell you how excited we are to see you here. I pray that your heart was full from the word today.